Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, the uh, little ad we had earlier, Marxist 28, uh, 2018, is uh, rollicking along. Great day yesterday. Goes on till Sunday, so if you haven't got a ticket and you want to know more about it, then it's down at uh, the Victorian College of the Arts. And uh, I'll have to say that uh, I've been to many sessions yesterday and uh, every one of them was of high interest and you will be partaking in some of those things that I went to see and hear uh, over some future Solidarity Breakfast uh so uh, editions because they, they were also very interesting. Uh, today is Trans Visibility Day. Uh, there will be lots of programming about that throughout the day, I think. And um, today we're going to have a few voices from the trans community later on. But before we do, we're going to uh, go to Sydney, where last Saturday there was a absolutely massive. Convergence on the city centre, and we've got a report from Vivian Langford. Uh, it was time to choose rally in Sydney last Saturday. 10,000 people came from hundreds of kilometres away. Some brought their horses, apparently, and it shows how upset they are about GSC, G, uh, CSG drilling, you know, fracking, basically, and extensions of coal mines on farmland. Uh, the indigenous mobs from many different nations were given prominence, starting with a smoking ceremony. And uh, we've got a few bits and pieces from that, if you want to know more about what happened on Saturday and the messages that they were trying to get across. You can go to the BZE program on Mondays uh, at about 5.30, I think it is, 5, 5.30. But uh, let's go to some of the stuff that... Uh, uh, Vivian collected for us. It's our time to choose. All of us here are part of a global movement of people around the world demanding that coal and gas power be replaced with renewable energy to clean the air, save water and stop global warming. Let's do it. Our first speaker today is Nathan Leslie. Nathan is a Gomorrah man from Northwest New South Wales. He is an activist for land rights and social justice. Two years ago, Nathan locked on in the Pilliga, standing up for country against coal seam gas. Dama, 
will also assist me to manage and maintain a viable farm, a viable, economically viable farm, but also an environmentally friendly farm. I won't have to push the land as hard as I've had to do in the past to survive. There are multiple benefits from wind farms to the communities where I live in regional Australia. The Wind Alliance, the Australian Wind Alliance, which I'm part of, estimate that something like $30 million each year is being contributed to rural communities, to farmers, to neighbours, to people that live in regional Australia. Desperately needed economic, um, e economic input into rural Australia. $30 million at least every year, every year for the next 20 or 30 years. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. We need to make sure the rollout of renewables, wind farms and solar farms is expedited, not resisted. We need to make sure that we move towards a renewable energy future, that we choose a renewable energy future, not a fossil fuel-based future. those farmers, like me and the communities, used to be paid to the politicians. Now they're being paid directly to the custodians of the land out there who are looking after it and are desperate to look after it. I'm a farmer but I'm also an environmentalist and I'm proud of that. Yeah. Now this is what I want you to do. We're living in a time of revolution. This is an industrial revolution. Some say we're living in the time of the third industrial revolution. But it's up to all of us today to make sure that we make this revolution more than an industrial revolution. It has to be a social revolution at the same time. We have to choose to make that revolution a social revolution. Distributed renewable energy is part of that future. don't happen from the top down. They happen from people. People drive revolutions. You people and us people that live in regional Australia, we must drive that revolution. So today, pull out your phone and join up to the Australian Wind Alliance. Join up to Solar Citizens. Join up to the Repower Campaign. This platform for New South Wales has already been produced. We can power New South Wales from renewable energy, 100% renewable energy. But also, I want you all to contact your electricity retailer and insist that they provide you with 100% renewable energy, preferably from community-owned renewable energy infrastructure. Insist. You're the customer. The customer's always right. Make sure that you insist. If they don't change or they won't change, then you have the power to change who you buy your electricity from. If you do that, then you will be supporting me and lots and lots of other farmers, hundreds of farmers like me, who have the opportunity to host renewable energy. And then contact your friends and tell them what you've just done. Tell them to be courageous enough to take that step. We can manage this transition to renewable energy ourselves as the people. Don't wait for the politicians to change. Make them change. If you do this, then we're going to be part of a social revolution. 
part of creating a new future for people like me that can, can, can grow the food and the fibre that feed and clothe you, but we can also provide the energy that will keep you warm in the winter time and cool in the summertime. Get on and do it. Yeah. But we've got to be smarter and braver than just saying no or stop or resisting the future. We have to embrace the future. We have to choose the future, but then we have to fight for it. That's the way revolutions happen. I'm not talking about guns and knives. I'm talking about social revolutions, fighting for the future that you want. If we choose that future, it will happen, but we have to choose it. Thank you. Anne is a Coonamble farmer, a grandmother of 13, and a fierce advocate for protecting water. She's the president of the Artesian Pool Water Users Association and president of the Great Artesian Basin Protection Group. Anne has been fighting to stop coal seam gas in the Pilliga Forest for a decade. She's joining us here today. Welcome, Anne.
insurance policy in the world that will cover you for the risk from coal seam gas mining. An international insurance broker told me that if an insurance company won't take on the risk, then it's not a risk, it's a certainty. It's inevitable. And we cannot get an insurance policy anywhere. We've tried. Yet the New South Wales government is backing Santos to pockmark the pillager with leaky, toxic gas wells. No, <laughs> we won't let them. We know this would be the first of many gas fields in our region. Santos has already mapped seven. And in northwest New South Wales, we've been resisting these gas fields and the gas pipeline for a while. People have said that the CSG Colson gas battle will be won in Canamble, but we know it's here in Sydney that we have the numbers to make a difference, and it's here in Sydney that the decisions are made. It's so important that you're here today and to fight with us and help us over the next 12 months. Santos don't have the approval yet to build the Narrabri gas field, and last year there were a record 23,000 submissions against their application. Yes. They still have to respond to those too. Across northwest New South Wales, 97% of people surveyed from over 101 communities and over 5 million hectares have declared they are going to remain gas fuel free. These people are totally dependent on this water. Colson gas mining is a short-term destructive industry that leaves an industrial wasteland behind and destroys our water. We have the rest of the year to stop this project and we need you to help us and fight with us. By uniting together, we've so far stopped Colson gas mining from spreading in New South Wales. Many communities have actually won against the gas industry giants. And this year we have to stop the industry for good. As George said, it's time to choose. We have to choose to have clean air, land to produce clean, healthy food, and clean water. Water is life. Please choose to stop coal seam the gas mining and save our water. This is actually a battle that we cannot afford to lose. Don't let them destroy our water. This is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. I found that fascinating. That was a great report from Vivian Langford in Sydney and I'm not sure if I was just living in a bubble but I didn't know 10,000 people converged on Sydney's centre last Saturday, uh, but you heard it here. And it's quite clear that, uh, that it is time to choose. Uh, you, you, It's just not on. It's gas, uh, coal seam gas is a poisoned, poisoned industry. Uh, let's move on. It's Trans uh, Visibility Day, as I said, and uh, we've got a couple of items that will help uh, people enter into that space. Uh, there was uh, a transgender uh, voices at the International Women's Day uh, event uh, on the uh, 8th of March this in Melbourne. And uh, I took the sound and uh, I thought that uh, you might be interested in what some of the people who uh, took, uh, took the stage had to say about their uh, 
views about their struggle to uh, get uh, um, equality within the framework that we live. So that was on the stage at uh, International Women's Day. And the person that uh, the speaker was talking about, uh, Savino Riviera, we've got a little um, clip of that event. Uh, Sylvia Riviera was um, a trans woman who 
was from New York and uh, she was part of the American Gay Liberation and Transgender Activ Activism and she self-identified as a drag queen. She was a founding member of both the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance. And with her close friend, Marsha P. Johnson, uh, they uh, co-founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, a group dedicated to helping homeless young drag queens and trans women of colour. And this is the little clip, qu quite a wild and uh, woolly event, but incredibly b brave. And This is uh, part of Transvisibility Trans Day, uh, and it's a... Extraordinary piece of sound. and tried to get their sex change. The women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women of the women's liberation. And they write Thor, not the women's group. They do not write women. They do not write men. They write Thor because we're trying to do something for them. I have been to jail. I have been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men, that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for them? No, you all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail, and do not forget the people that are trying to do something for all of us, and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club, and that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Give me a kiss! Give me an Give me a P! Give me a O! Give me a W! Give me a W! 
We have to stand up and speak for ourselves. We have to fight for ourselves. We saved their lives. We were the frontliners of the so-called 1969 rebellion of the Stonewall. Human freedom's fundamental and justice so right. Equality's that thin line between wrong and right. When the earth is denuded and creatures oppressed, then justice and freedom are put to the test. We say freedom. Freedom, welcome. Welcome freedom. Welcome freedom. Justice. CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got uh, Sally Goldner, who is the uh, Executive Director of Transgender Victoria on the line. G'day, Sally, how are you? Morning, Annie. I'm yeah. pretty good. Yeah, good. Thanks for getting up and having a yarn with us. Uh, we're talking about uh, a, a, um, a safeguarding end of life for older LGBTI Victorians, an initiative between CODA Victoria and Transgender Victoria. Uh, it's a resource, isn't it? It is indeed. Um, so 
how it came about was that um, we started doing our um, LGBTI ageing and aged care training around mid-2014 and gradually it emerged that LGBTI people were even less likely than the average of the population to do end-of-life planning and it seems that there's only about, I mean, it's only one measure, but it seems only 50% of the broader population have a will, but then, and then LGBTI people even less so. And the the research we did in preparing the document was surprising. We thought it might be, oh, people that have just come out later in life haven't thought about rearranging things or maybe it's finances, but we actually came across some interesting findings that people... You know, in the same service provision generally, they didn't find um, perhaps enough lawyers who were understanding of their particular needs. So it's been an interesting exercise and a lot of factors in, at play. Yeah, and what is what are the particular needs? Can you describe what's um, uh, particularly confronting for LGBTI Victorians when it, it comes to this sort of thing? I mean, you know, it's confronting to do a will because it means you're going to die, but... Um, maybe, yeah. I mean, that, that comes into it. It is a factor for everybody. But um, why is it particularly confronting? Yeah, well, you're quite right. If I can be a little dry human, I'm, I'm, as far as I'm aware, we're all going to die and That's there's right. all sorts of stuff about death. You know, I, I know LGBTI people are great, and um, but no, we're not immortal. Um, and so there's a few factors. Um, you know, there's the whole um, problem of... Um, you know, what sort of things come in. So end-of-life planning covers certainly wills, but also medical attorney, power of attorney for everyone. But I think there's a particular aspect for LGBTI people, and that's that period from the time where you do die through to the time the will's opened, where there's possibly a vacuum. And one thing that our experience has shown, both also both personally and in the broader community, is that, um, you know, often... Um, LGBTI people have been, um, whether um, through their own choice or because of the actions of family, um, I'll use the word, cut off from family of origin. Yeah. And the issue is that um, then those family of origin come back in and take over the funeral. They won't acknowledge the person's sexual orientation, gender identity and or body, um, or they'll, um, in the case of trans people, um, those family of origin who were not supportive will come back in and say for a trans woman who we knew was, we'll say, Mary Ann. Oh, well, uh, yeah, but yeah, who, who was, yeah. you know, designated as Fred when when they were born. That's right, yeah. So the funeral um, becomes, um, you know, Fred and he, which is really terrible. Oh, it's a parody, person. isn't it? It's a parody of uh, someone's life. Absolutely, yeah. So um, we decided that we needed to start getting these sorts of resources together. One thing we did hear along the way is that, that having a supportive executor can be really important, close to critical, but getting it planned and documented. It might not be 100% insurance, if you like, but it's a really good thing to have it done. And personally, while I'm not a lawyer, one thing that can be helpful is um, having some sort of videoed instructions of the person before they before they die. So there can't um, be any any uh, dispute. This is what yeah, this person wanted. That's right. So if that trans person says, hi, I'm Marianne and I use she pronouns and they have to be used throughout a memorial service or whatever it is, 
and I want rainbow streamers or trans swags or whatever it is, then they have to follow that. So this is the sort of thing we've learnt. But, um, yeah, having a supportive executor, considering all the possibilities about, you know, who, if someone goes into care, what happens to, with, a, with a partner, just so there is at least a greater chance of equality so that the LGBTI um, sort of, well, anything that could through no fault of the LGBTI person will say be a problem is reduced. And yeah, also finding lawyers who, you know, let, um, it's not, you know, let's say a lesbian turns up and the first thing the lawyer says, so what's, who's your husband? Who are you leaving it? Who, who that you're leaving it to? Um, that can, that sort of thing can happen as well. So it's been a really good process that's come up with um, a really good resource. So the um, there are other things uh, I, I noticed in the uh, release that came out about this that you know things like uh, a very practical. I mean that's very practical the actual service, but also protect family, friends, and assets. So clearly assets become an issue because I mean anybody who's had anything to do with uh, well have a family, uh, and I mean you don't have to be transgender to have people going completely peculiar on you when it comes to do with uh, a death and assets. People all go, they, they're quite peculiar. People go peculiar. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Greed is a base human emotion, again, regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation, etc. And if there is money involved, um, all of a sudden, oh, no, that person loved me. I was entitled to something. Uh, mm. Yeah, how do you know? So getting it documented, making it clear, um, again, but it isn't just money, it is, you know, end-of-life care. Um, who do you want to care for you? Explaining why you think this person would be better than, say, a, a family of origin member. Um, you know, having that all clear as much as possible and, um, you, know, has, is, is, you know, is really needed. And just so you can have a bit more dignity in the final, we'll say, days and months of life, but then also give your um, family and, and friends the, you know, the chance to have the service that you would have wanted, that sort of thing, and make sure that, yeah, again, if there is assets to be distributed, that they go to the people you wanted, yep. Yeah, and so it's a booklet, isn't it? It's Safeguarding the End of the Rainbow, a Guide to Help LGBT People in Victoria to Plan End of Life. Um, it obviously has uh, uh, nuts and bolts, but it also prepares people for discussions with partners and family and friends around these issues. That's right. Yeah, it's it's not as it, you know, and that comes back to well, I suppose both the you know the general human factor that, as we said, it's you know people don't want to talk about death, and that's a big emotional issue, and that's fair enough, or generally don't want to. But you know, if there are, have been these complicating factors, they come up at an emotional time if someone hasn't accepted um, their loved ones um, being part of LGBTI. Um, you know, it's where it's going to be, you know, other things will come up. So um, very, very true. And, um, you know, we've just, you know, I think it is about trying to do it while as quick, early as possible. And technically, everyone over 18 needs to have this in place um, and have all the, the right people in place. Um, because, of course, whilst we're talking end of life here, having all these things like medical attorney and power of attorney in place, I mean, um, well, we're all very careful, hopefully, crossing Smith Street um, mm. where the trams are, but one day we might just be a little careless. So having them in place, I think, is a really good thing. I have to say, I learned personally a lot. Um, and then finally, I've got to say, getting around to doing my own paperwork. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> because I never, ha I never had it. You just don't think of it, perhaps, 
um, you know, I'll throw my own bit of you know a bit of my own stuff in. You know, when you're struggling day to day, perhaps to keep up with life, um, and perhaps don't have the the money, that can be a factor as well to get it all organised. But in the end, it's not um, to get a good um, kit done isn't too bad for yourself to have it all sorted. Um, it can, you know, you just think, oh, I'll put that off again. You know, I can't be bothered. So it did help me um, become someone who will, you know, pretty soon now be able to say that I practice what I preach. So, you know, there's lots of angles in there and it may, you know, you don't want to think about them. I mean, um, you know, so my my relationship with my parents is great, but they're in Queensland and they're older. I don't really, God forbid, something happens to me. I don't think it's really fair on them to have to come down here and start organising things. So it got me thinking about, well, who would be good who would look after my interests, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's a really good thing to have it planned when things are a bit calmer and there's less emotion. So, um, and again, you know, particularly for LGBTI, as I say, my parent relationship with my parents is great now, but um, it would, it's better to have it, you know, have it done perhaps if that isn't the case and someone else who isn't as supportive could, you know, cut in on things. Yeah, well, uh, anybody, uh, I mean, life's complicated and, uh, you know, a person can be in a relationship for a very long time and the, and uh, uh, when it comes to illness and death, uh, that person, I mean, it is it is known that people who have partners uh, left, they can be excluded because the, well, they, they're not being recognised. Well, that's right. And this, I suppose, brings in another layer that you can have everything as, documented, we'll say, as best practice as possible. Um, but, you know, we've had plenty of stories in the last four years come our way, um, either, direct, we'll say, directly or indirectly, of where people think they know better than the law and will bring in their own prejudices. Um, one example of that was a case where um, a gay guy was in, um, you know, in a retirement village, you know, one of the 99-year the lease arrangements. And sure, this was prior to marriage equality last December, but he, you know, had it was in a domestic partnership, had made everything out to a um, partner. But um, when the, the gay guy died, the, the one in the unit died, the partner kept getting denied access to um, the unit so it could be, you know, say repainting or any, you know, minor refurb could start. And he was getting a bit stressed out, you know, gosh, what do I do here? Um, do I have to start getting injunctions? And, you know, it was quite simple. And then just said, well, you know, when we discussed it, I uh, said, well, other people, when they die, who gets access to the unit? Oh, kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, um, mm. fifth cousins removed sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so it was discrimination. But um, so having it in place is a good start. But unfortunately, where discrimination is going to happen, it will happen one-on-one. And so this can be just a little bit of an, ins- we'll say an insurance policy, if you want to use that term to try to minimise the effects of that if it's going to happen too. What's been the reaction? Because um, I know you had a, a big launch and uh, the, yep. and, uh, the uh, Minister for, uh, oh, he's got a huge name, Housing, Disability and Ageing, Mental Health, Equality and Creative Industries. How does he do it? But you had a big, uh, big launch, uh, which means that uh, there's lots of backing. You know, it's a, it's an important step. But what's been the uh, response from the LGBTI uh, community that you've been able to uh, gauge? 
Yeah, did big launch with the, the minister with the long business card, Martin Foley. So, uh, you know, in the last 10 days, there has been a good response that it, people have realised it's needed and it's filling a gap. And, you know, now comes, you know, whilst obviously we did focus groups to find out um, what was really needed, I suppose the test will come in over time as to, um, you know, sort of using it. Also, we've got to get it out there, I think, to the LGBTI community, but also, I think, um, aged care service providers and funeral um, directors. I think this could be, that's probably another target that we could get this out to. Um, so we've obviously now got to start the, well, the, you know, the distribution. And I think that um, that will, um, you know, probably give us more information. That, you know, I think that no matter how well you do it, and we're very happy with it, there could be something we thought, oh gosh, we could have put that in and someone might come up with that. So um, but people, I think, have realised the main thing, there's a need, that there's a gap, and yeah. this has started to, to fill it, and I think that's going to be um, incredibly helpful. Yeah, it sounds like it. So where do people get a booklet if they uh, want one? Um, I'm just try- I must admit, I'm just trying to um, get the link up now. Um, it's on CODA's website, um, Steve, um, is, the, is the place to start, sorry. Yeah, um, so that's so, C-O-T-A. Um, yeah, Code of Vic. Yeah. Um, so, so they can go um, to that side? Were, that's right, yeah. Good. And, um, and they were fantastic to work with, um, a great team. But I think what also helped was having a range of um, people involved. Sure, LGBTI lived experience was critical, but having people with, say, medical backgrounds who worked in hospitals, I think was really helpful. Legal people um, from both um, Human Rights Law Centre and law firms having a look at it. So I think that was also been a great, a great part of it um, that um, you know, put everything together so well. So, you know, as I say, we're really happy with it on lots of angles and um, also just like to um, acknowledge my transgender Victoria colleague, Brenda Appleton, who put a lot of time and effort and direction into it as well. Thanks for talking to us, Sally. Yeah, and of course, I'm happy Trans Day of Visibility to all. Um, a good day to have a chat about something that, well, benefits all of LGBTI, but I think partic- you know, um, particularly trans. Great that we've got marriage equality, but um, we also um, have to have distance to travel for trans, so a good time to have a chat about it. So thanks for the, um, the, the time, Annie. No worries. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And it's interesting, uh, brought up a couple of issues there. It might be a new thing for people to realise that um, in Victoria, apparently, uh, the uh, Andrews government is set to eliminate an anomaly in Victoria's birth certificate laws that requires anyone wishing to change their gender to be unmarried. And it's interesting because... uh, uh, Victoria is behind the times in a sense. The Victorian government attempted to pass reforms uh, earlier uh, in 2016, but the bill failed to pass by one vote, and that means that it's out of step with places like the South Australia ACT. Uh, and uh, and what it means is for people who uh, have... Uh, uh, Currently in Victoria, people can only change the gender on their birth certificate if they've had surgery on their reproductive organs and are unmarried. Wholesale changes similar to those 
included in the failed 2016 bill are required to remove these barriers, uh, which is quite quite extraordinary. Uh, if it doesn't affect you, then you would be uh, unaware. And it's interesting that uh, a fairly high-profile person, Victorian Senator Janet Rice, is married to Penny, who is currently prevented from changing her birth certificate to reflect her female gender. And so uh, Victorian Senator Janet Rice said, I'm so pleased that the Victorian government has introduced this legislation uh, to uh, forcing trans people to divorce their partner before they can change their birth certificate is discrimination. So there you go. And as Sally said, happy uh, Transgender Visibility Day. got on the line. Kevin, we've got you live for Easter. Ah, I'm live. Well, <laughs> I'm, it's, well, I'm in the tomb, but I don't come out till tomorrow, but it's, you know, I'm sort of live, sort of, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've got to use a torch, of course, to see the script this morning in here, but um, Annie, I was just thinking this morning's program um, is a perfect example of why we need 3CR, isn't it? Because you mentioned, and I also didn't know there was that huge rally in Sydney last oh, no. weekend. I know. Uh, 
I went back to Thursday's Sun because I noted that Bolt had a whole page article about fracking and I didn't bother to read it, but I read on and he's saying how wonderful fracking is and how stupid we are, but he still doesn't mention the rally. I know. Uh, and of course... Um, uh, groups like uh, Sally and the trans community also, you know, it, we're about the only voice they've really got in this community. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, let's get on with it. Okay, go for it. At a weak solidarity bricky team, and the bricky team seems to be just you these days, Annie. And listen, when we just have to dust ourselves off and attempt to get on with our lives, lives that will be so inferior to what they could have been after that panacea to all that is wrong with our lives, tax cuts for the filthy rich, was rejected by a myopic Senate, casting us back to our miserable existences when those who have nothing but the common good in mind offered us the panacea. Why? Caring employers promised they would invest, create jobs, raise wages to stellar levels, or, as they said, ultimately increase wages. And one of our very favourites, Innes Welloff from the Troubler Was the Industry Profits Group, assured us once in place these investments would underwrite improvements in real wages and living standards. So, and lay the foundation for improvements, which I found important. So what more assurance do we need that cutting taxes for the filthy rich is all about us? True altruism. Okay, okay, they didn't quite spell out what ultimately and lay the foundation for meant, just how long the non-filthy rich might have to wait for the famous yellow drops to trickle down, although in this case a promised avalanche of yellow, and if only that biopic Senate had done what this country needs, then... Ultimately, after laying the foundation, the caring business class would tell us when the time is right for those massive wage rises, showing how critical tax cuts for the filthy rich are, because without them, for poor caring employers, the time for any wage increase has never been right in living memory. Just a bit unfortunate that leak of a secret Troublawazi Business Profits Council survey showed 80% of the business profits lots said they would hand a tax windfall to shareholders and themselves, and only 17% said they would increase wages, but there is a simple explanation. The survey was incomplete, the Profits Council said, and the pledge to senators about massive investment in jobs and wages by the same caring employers who said in the survey they would not increased jobs and wages was what mattered, not some silly incomplete survey, leaving us to wonder why they bothered to do the survey in the first place, but it must have had something to do with how they care for all of us. And I'm sick of people saying, why do caring employers and the filthy rich carry on about tax cuts when they don't pay any in the first place? Doesn't it show there, that is, the critics' ignorance of the real world? Speaking of the trickle-down effect, those drops of yellow liquid, great news that we now have Amanda Stoker to fight for the riffraff. Amanda who? Amanda Stoker. She's the new Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Senator, replacing former Attorney General George Brandy's brain. Lawyer, former associate for that delightful and delightfully progressive High Court beak, Ian Cullinan, who nominates her political heroes as the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in the last Dark Ages, and Maggie Thatchtair. I come from a generation of young politicians inspired by the little bald-headed bloke's era, 
and she wants Trubler Wazzy to have as little government as possible for people to reach their full potential. So won't she be a treat? And if only those tax cuts for the filthy rich had been passed, Trubler Wazzy would have had as little as possible government because it couldn't afford anything else. Although good news, I'm prepared to bet the tax cuts have only been delayed because Trublowazzi workers and the needy are in safe hands when Darren Lynchum is out to save them. The only way to save them, the caring business class assured the week that was, is to crucify evil unions and evil workers. They are crucifying us, and crucifying them is the only way to restore the balance of a law so biased toward unions and workers, toward their interests, we must bring it back to the sensible centre to save us like the dear baby Jesus saved us all by dying on the cross. Uh, but us, them, don't you argue there is no such thing as us and them, no such thing as class struggle? And in an ideal world, there wouldn't be if it wasn't for them. Uh, but Jesus was innocent, according to you, so why celebrate violence toward an innocent man? Jesus, the dear baby Jesus, was not as innocent as you would think. Why, just this week, the senior Catholic Archbishop in this country said, Jesus held the first bank, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, by throwing the moneylenders out of the temple. Evil unions and evil workers are continuing that evil work against all that makes this country great, this world great wonder how long it took the Archbishop or his spin doctors to come up with that line about Jesus, the Royal Commissioner, but this spirit of love thy neighbour prevalent as US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, nominates the first woman to be nominated to head the good old CIA. Gina hospitalised them, whose main claim to fame seems to be running a torture program for the good old CIA in a secret Thai prison. Ideal qualification for the job. And let's hope Capitol Hill approves her appointment while no praise, no heartfelt congratulations for another young woman, Brazil's 38-year-old human rights advocate and fighter for the poor, particularly in the favelas, Marielle Franco, given the traditional recognition for those who fight for human rights and the impoverished, mown down in a hail of bullets the modern form of extrajudicial crucifixion. And, surprise, surprise, the bullets turned out to be from a delivery sent to the... <coughs> sorry, the police, the paramilitary police. Who would have thought? For we all know the police don't do that sort of thing, but there is a simple explanation. Upon checking, the police and the government and the non-poor, the filthy rich said, yes, you got it, the bullets had been stolen. What Depths of depravity, breaking into a police station without being caught, must have been pretty smart coppers in the place they robbed, so they could assassinate a fighter for the poor. The tale of two women, a threat to society, nailed to a cross, so to speak, and a pillar of cultured society, overseeing torture in a secret Thai prison, so we can enjoy human rights and ensure the world as we know it survives these threats with a little help from True Blue Aussie as the Minister for Offensive Behaviour and Trained Killing, same thing, Maurice Payne for them, says the killing of civilians in Iraq, where we're not at war, so we're, we're just bombing the odd city here and there, civilians, a newly married couple, and injuries to two non-dear little children not conceived in the image of the dear baby Jesus, so why do they even matter? Well, 
more than likely killing, according to the big train killers, was due to a complex circumstance. And, well, it was in a war zone. Must have been a mopping-up operation, because we all know it was mission accomplished in Iraq 15 years ago, like the other mopping-up operations in which the cream of true blue Aussie youth, brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party trained killers, have murdered, uh, sorry, faced complex circumstances in a war zone. And they took all precautions and believed there was no, there were no civilians in this house we bombed. Apparently, you can see a lot looking down at a city from a few thousand feet in the air. And the last thing you'd expect to find in a city would be civilians. So it's their own fault for being there. But all's well that ends well. Marie said she regrets the deaths. Well, more than likely deaths, so that'll make them feel better. In the week that was sport, the wonderful young men who comprised the True Blue Aussie cricket team have given a whole new meaning to the term sticky wicket or rubbing people up the wrong way, but retain the whole old meaning of dumb or puerile or brainless or moronic or cheat. We could go on, with commentators including many in the 11 pages devoted to dumb, puerile, brainless, moronic and cheat in Monday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin agreeing with each other, so much so it combined with the Grand Prix and page after page of football, crowded out a March Sunday to protest Trublawazi's treatment of those seeking refuge, many from our invasions of their countries. While, and here we must thank the Minister for Concentration Cam's razor wire and sink the boats and making our Christian homes safe, Constable Peter Dumdum, uh, sorry, Peter Duffer, for making us aware of the humanity of a civilised nation like ours by recognising our obligations to South Apartheid's white farmers. Commentators concurring that the sticky wicket was contrary to all that True Blue Aussie stands for. Fairness, sportspersonship, acceptance, compassion, multiculturalism. All the more reason to ignore the thousands marching of alleged non-True Blue Aussie values like cruelty, inhumanity, racism, militarism, views demanding to be denied oxygen. The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, which normally runs the sport of ripping off on its front page, told us how the sensitivities of the generous sponsors, a financial services company, the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, and the Flying Kangaroo, which used to be our airline, who provide their sponsorship for no other reason than a love of sport and True Blue Aussie values. And we can but imagine the disbelief at the generous financier and the generous big bank and the generous airline that someone would cheat and practice deceit. Indeed, they sounded so very righteous. But especially, finally, don't our hearts go out to boof that oh-so-appropriate epithet for the coach forced to resign. For we all recall so fondly Booth the player storming into the rooms after being dismissed against Sri Lanka, smashing his bat into the wall and declaring the bowler a black female genital. If only he'd added some very hysterically funny homophobic comment and he could have scored the trifecta. Good morning.
G'day, Humphrey. How are you? I'm very well, Annie. And how are you? Good. On this uh, corn god day. The cor- wow, the corn god festival. Yes, yeah. we'll get to that in a minute. But in the meantime, of course, we are looking forward only five weeks to go to Marx's birthday. Yay. Um, so, um, but today we're going to have a look at another of his earlier works, um, at the beginnings as he gets into um, an analysis of political economy. Uh, and then we'll go on to the manifesto uh, to lead up to 1848 yep. and things. But as you say, I just a little bit, because it is the holiday log weekend, um, I thought I'd make a recommendation for people, something I've been encouraging everyone to do for the last couple of years. There's a wonderful Belgian film called Brand New Testament. And as you can see the title, the Old Testament, the New Testament, well, this is a New Testament for 3CR audiences. This is how we would like the world to be. Um, I'm not going to say any more about it because you'll be angry with me if I spoil any of it, except to say... If Cory Bernard were made to watch it, he'd die of apoplexy in 10 minutes. <laughs> and normally, well, that's a recommendation. That's enough, that's enough. <laughs> Most people then rush off to try and get their hands on one. You can download them on all the kind of platforms and things. But as you say, this is um, the Christians have done their usual trick of stealing the festivity around the death and rebirth of the corn god, which is what Easter's now turned itself into, plus, of course, now, like everything else, like the game of cricket, into a great commercial enterprise um, with the uh, the mass production of eggs and all this other stuff that goes on. So that's been taken away from them, too, by the power of the expansion the of capital. Dollar. Yeah, the mighty dollar. The all, almighty dollar. But as we go from the brand-new Testament, which, as I say, is a Belgian film, into... Um, Karl Marx, of course, he takes refuge in Belgium at one point before he crosses over to England. So we've got a bit of a segue that we've managed to to drag in to get there. But where we want to get to is this early work on political economy called The Poverty of Philosophy. And this is a play on the title of a book by a French writer, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who'd written a book called the philosophy of poverty, mm. or at least that's how it's translated when we get it into English. The French title is more interesting. I, I'm not just being an old pedant and going back to the words in the French title, but as my poor French would say, la philosophie de la misère. Mm. And there's a difference between the state of being miserable and the state of being financially poor. Hmm. Indeed, one might say that you know there are plenty of instances of people who get a you know a well, fair amount of money. Hasn't Packer? Hasn't Packer? Hasn't and pa- the work actually yeah. makes them terribly miserable. I was going to say, hasn't Packer given up Crown because he's depressed? Well, yes, yeah, <laughs> but you know, well, that's at one end of the proceedings, and we all feel very sorry about that. Um, but I mean. That, that sense of the difference between the miserization 
that capitalism forces on people. And this, you know, I mean, we all know the phrase out of Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, um, that that sense that has been translated, interestingly, in a new Penguin edition, where the translation is not... Well, well, I mean, they usually call it, um, they use the French word usually for it, Les Miserables, but the new English translation is The Wretched. And that does give you a real sense of, of what life can be like, doesn't it? It certainly um, does. Yeah. And so it's often accused, well, Marx is often accused of saying that people will get poorer and poorer. Um and sometimes he does say that, but for reasons we'll get to in a moment, that's not really the long-term position he has. What he does say, though, is that when you get richer under capitalism, the very things that make you richer are the things that are likely to add to your sense of psychological uh, a kind of impoverishment. I mean, he talks, as we know, about alienation and estrangement. So Marx is often misunderstood as saying that people are going to get financially poorer always under capitalism. Whereas what he's truly saying is, well, yes, that happens, but what happens under capitalism because people's meaningful work is taken away from them, control in the workplace is taken away from them, first of all by the machines that are needed to make more things so that there can be a better chance of keeping up the rate of profit for the capitalists, all of these things make life more and more miserable, um, more and more wretched for people. And that's a very, very important part of what Marx, from the very beginning, as we know with the economic and philosophical manuscripts, when he's really very young, only about 25, you know, it's about a couple of years earlier, but he's moved on through there. He's now getting a much deeper grasp of the rules of political economy. I, I kind of like uh, this list of words that you have, uh uh, mutilates, cripples, destroys, degrades, torment, deform, distort the worker into a fragment of a human being. Yeah, I mean, all of that's in Das Kapital. Yeah. You know, all of, I mean, there's a wonderful flowing passage there where one of the passages there where his anger at how awful the system is, he's most, you know, he, he gets angriest. Um, sometimes it's a cold fury and sometimes it is a hot passion. And the hot passion comes out most always when it is referring to what's happened to children. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's a total denunciation of, of, of these awful things that are... People's lives are just, well, I'm going to say taken away from them. They don't get them in the first place. Yep. Um, you know, there's a... It always seems strange to me that uh, it was a crime to commit suicide because, of course, you were owned by the state. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, well, but on the question of must the poor get poorer, back to the political economy and the, you know, the direct political economy, this is where Marx and Proudhon began to part company. Um, Proudhon quite early on um, says that people are being impoverished because the capitalists are getting richer and richer. And in the beginning, Marx and Engels are quite attracted to the things that he's saying. And then they investigate more closely. And they find that Proudhon has a view of the world that isn't the one that uh, that they want to subscribe to at all. And Proudhon says there is something called the iron law of wages, that 
there is a there is only a limited amount of money that the capitalist system is able to produce to pay for wages and it doesn't matter what you do you can redistribute it amongst the workers but you can't actually make it any larger well marx and engels of course argue very very much all the way through their lives that of course that's not true if you get organized and you struggle then you can take more of the capitalist take away from them and if they are organized and they're stronger then they can take more away from us. And if we look at the world today, we can see what happens when the working class is disorganised, as it is in Australia, more than it's been for a very long time, and real wages stagnate, and the relative share of all the things that are produced here by working people, more of them go towards the big corporations and fewer towards the people who are actually engaged in the production of the things. So that sense that what it's decided by is what we could say, quite importantly, I think, is the relative strength of the contending classes. It's not, there's no iron law involved. It is a question of the class struggle. It's a battle. It's a battle. Always about second by second. Not just, you know, when you have a big strike or something. It's something that goes on every second of every day um, over this. Now, Proudhon began in 1840, and this is one of the things that attracted Marx by writing another book, his first book, called What is Property? Qu'est-ce que c'est la propriété? It almost rhymes in French, even in my bad <laughs> French it rhymes. Um, so, but the opening sentence in that book is quite famous, and it's something that we're all a bit inclined to say. The question is, what is property? Property is theft, says Proudhon. <laughs> And as I said before, you know, Proudhon thinks that this is because a small number of people are able to live off the labour of the vast majority. And that, of course, is, you know, well, Marx wouldn't, um, wouldn't um, in any way resile from that. I mean, yeah, that's the kind of thing he believes as well. But as Marx studies political economy, he moves beyond that simple position. And if we can see why, I think it's important for us... Um, not just you know for Marxist scholarship, but for our political activities today to answer this question, what is property? Um, and to into this answer, property is theft. In which sense is it theft? Uh, so one of the things I think we have to ask first is what do we mean by the term what is property? Which, uh, what kind of thing are we talking about? And here, I think it's important to distinguish between personal possessions and productive property. Uh, because the enemies of socialism, uh, you know, go around running around with this story of, oh, the socialists want to nationalise your toothbrush. <laughs> uh, truly, this is one of the stories they put around. I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? But anyway, I mean, that's what they try and do, one of the ways in which they try and distract us from what's real. Now, what we want to nationalise are the factories that make toothbrushes, the warehouses where they're stored, and the supermarkets where they're sold. There's no intention whatsoever, no thought. What would be the point? I mean, it's got nothing to do owning your own toothbrush. You can't exploit somebody else by owning your own toothbrush. Um, and I don't, I must say, I've never seen any ads 
that you can rent somebody else's toothbrush. <laughs> you don't think there's a market or are people not well, queuing up to rent a pre-used uh, toothbrush? Well, there may be somewhere. It may be possible. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it doesn't seem to me there's a big demand for it. Perhaps out there on the internet somewhere one could find the platform for it. But no, it's not there. And the other bit about, and we've said this before because it's important to get it across, the other big lie that the capitalists put around about what you know, socialists, they try and say to people, well, you're a capitalist too because you own your own home. No, you're not. If you're, all you do is own your own home and you're the only, you know, you're the household that are in there, mm. there's no way that can make you a capitalist. How can you exploit people by owning your own home? I mean, you might have exploited people to buy a $20 million mansion by the harbour. That's possible. Mm. But the home itself, isn't going, I mean, if the only people who live in Turnbull's house are, t- um, are the Turnbull family, then he can't exploit anybody just they're, by doing that. They're not he'd be better rent. off. Well, he'd be better off putting the $20 million into some investment and then exploit people if you want to be a, a big capitalist. So you ain't no capitalist just by owning your own home. Of course, if you become a landlord, what happens then? Well... Yes, you can exploit people that way in, in one sense, but you're not exploiting them by taking surplus value away from them. What you're taking away is a part of the value that they've created and been paid for by some other capitalist. So it's, it's what happens there, it's part of the circuits of capital um, rather than the immediate exploitation of the extraction of surplus value, so these are a couple of the ways they want to take over your you know, want to take over your toothbrush. That you're a capitalist anyway, therefore they're out to get you. Um, all of that uh, is part of the. the so they're just dodging system. the issue when they come up with these false oh, assertions. Of course they are, and you know, and unless we on the left keep being clear in our own heads about these things, distinguishing between private possessions and productive property, of getting very clear how it is the capitalist system does operate, then it gets harder and harder to explain to people, to keep people on track, and particularly the next bit I want to say something about, and that is about wage slaves and wages, Mm. because that really does take it to the heart of the matter. And Proudhon was right to point out that control over over, uh, the instruments of production uh, allow some people to live without ever having to work. Whereas on the other side of the coin, the majority of us work without ever really being able to live to the full extent of our capacities. That's our immiserization. Mm. Uh, so Proudhon was certainly certainly right about that. But what Marx saw eventually, not yet, and this is another important point I'll say something about in a moment, but <clears throat> he eventually came to see that Under capitalism, what is peculiar is that the capitalist doesn't cheat you when he employs you. On average, the capitalist system pays us the full value for the commodity that we sell them. That is, our capacity to add value to them. And this is the oddity. And it looks as if there is no exploitation. Uh, Because, you know, okay, it costs you this much to get yourself to work, to pay for your housing, transport, food, education, health, all of those important things. And, okay, what is what the average across the system, that's, what you're, that's the amount that the capitalist is going to pay you. 
So how can there be exploitation? And this is Marx's great discovery. The difference between that value and the surplus value, the value that workers add in the time for which we aren't paid. And that's the hard bit to get across to people sometimes, you know, to think, oh, yeah, well, you're not being exploited in the simple sense um, that they're actually being stolen from you, but you're still being exploited in a more powerful way than you would be if they were just able to take to take some of the stuff from you. Now, Marx didn't understand this um, as he was starting out in the 1840s. In fact, it takes him quite a while uh, to be able to get there. Um, and he worked it out by hard study and by engaging in working-class struggles. It's the combination of those two. It's the, the interpreting and the changing, being involved in both of these things at the same time that brings them together. And it's that for that happened for him. We have the benefit now, of course, of his discoveries. But nonetheless, in order to grasp those discoveries, I think, and to keep them closely in front of us all the time, we too have to engage in hard study and in hard struggle. And if we don't do both, then we are likely to slip back into a misunderstanding into the bourgeois propaganda, what we've sometimes referred to on the program as the supersaturated solution of bourgeois bullshit. Because <laughs> it's around us. We're all victims flows to off it. Your, yeah, it flows off your tongue, that. It does indeed. Well, I've been practising. But so these are some of the things we've got to do. We can't just get there by memorising some formula. We really have to make ourselves be able to understand it in a way that we can then explain it to other people. I mean, that's the really hard thing. As you know, with, with anything you study, you can often understand it yourself, but when you try to explain it to somebody else, you think, oh, I'm not so good at it as I thought I was. So I said before that um, that that you know the, the capitalist doesn't exploit us in the average working of the system. However, as you read through Capital, you encounter swindle after swindle after swindle, uh, cheating and thieving. So in that sense, property is also theft. So how do these two things manage to go together? Well, on the one hand, we've got Marx saying this is ideally this is the ideal version of how the capitalist system works. But in practice, yes, they do that, and they pay you for your full value, and then they try and steal some of it back from you. Um, and they do it, of course, as we know, by making you work uh, for unpaid hours, off the clock, um, all kinds of ways. I mean, the old story the workers had that the clocks always ran early in the morning and late in the afternoon. <laughs> um, so they'd get a so they get a few more minutes out of you for free, those sorts of, of, of things. I've never really seen a Marxist account of where swindles fit into the capitalist system. Some people, unfortunately, think that the whole thing's a swindle and they don't understand, they don't get to Marx's it's point. It's a bit more sophisticated than that. <laughs> yeah. It's, so they, it's, it's a uh, tight weave swindle, many. Well, many of the... And, Mm -hmm. The reason they're there, I mean, they're not just accidental, I think. I, mean, oh, I, think no. the, expl I mean, the explanation is they are forced on the capitalist by the competition of other capitalists. So that in order to survive, not only have they got to exploit 
their own their own proletariat, the workers in their own plants and factories and offices. They've got to do that. But they've got to ward off the competition from the outside. And so they put pressure. I mean, well, they swindle their workers, they swindle their customers, um, you know, you know, the kind of price-fixing schemes that Dick Pratt got up to, and they swindle other capitalists. I mean, so, the reason... so what you're saying is it's a business model. Well, it, it, it has to be part. Of, it has to be part of the business model. Uh, and a, as you say, there's a difference between that and the economic model that Marx identifies that operates within the capitalist system. So we've got to, you know, we've got to be able to say yes, there's an equal exchange, but there's also this pattern of swindling and thieving and cheating that is an essential part of the competitive nature of the system between one capital and another um, that, that helps to explain all of these things that, that, that are going on there. Now, the other thing about property is theft. Let's get back to that. We said before, well, property is not theft in terms of the relationship that Marx identifies between the capitalist and the wage slave. However, for, for the beginnings of the capitalist system, how it gets started, it is indeed a system of property as theft because they, first of all, the words of the old rhyme, they steal the common from the goose. Um, and not only in stealing it from the poor old goose, they steal it from the person who owned the goose, who's the peasant <laughs> and the small proprietor. So they get hold of the land in, in, in you know, by that kind of act of appropriation and theft. Then, of course, they go sailing around the world and they take over the gold and silver out of Central and Southern America. Uh, they steal, if you like, 10 million chattel slaves out of Africa. Um, they steal the water and soil from around the world, including through the invasion of Australia. All of these are the ways in which the system gets up and running. These are the ways in which property is theft at the start of the system. Uh, and that kind of theft, the one that happened with the invasion of Australia and of Latin America in those days, is still going on. You still see it in Papua New Guinea, you can see it in the Brazilian forests, you can see it in the Indian forests. Uh, land is still being stolen in that simple sense. Well, you can see it at the top of New South Wales where they want to frack. Well, there you've got a more complicated arrangement. In, in, in terms of the property. I'm thinking of going back to the days in which the original proprietors still owned the land. Ah, yes, um, that was just straight-out theft, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, that was, was very just straight-out theft. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that kind of theft is, 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 at, the, is at the foundation of, of the very system, and that's what leads Marx into one of his other famous denunciations, he says, capitalism came into the world, and I quote, dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt. Mm. Uh, so that's how, that's how it got started. But it couldn't go on expanding <coughs> simply by plunder. Uh, unless it exploited people for their labour on top of this, uh, it, it couldn't go on expanding. See, I mean... Stealing that, you know, they paid for the chattel slaves in Africa, but, you know, they were dragging them across the Atlantic to 10 million. They weren't just doing this to get a hold of them. They were doing them to set them to work to make them add more value. Oh, um, yes. Now, they weren't part of the capitalist system, the, you know, the slaves. That wasn't what was happening to them. They were exploited in the old, 
in the old slave way. So as we're winding up, I'll just you know, quickly end by saying that uh, Marx's reply to Proudhon's 100 pages. And we're all time poor these days, so I've sent you down a 10-page summary yep. written by no other than Marx himself. So you can post that up um, and you can read how Marx makes a 10-page response to all of this. Proudhon himself is not a bad bloke. Um, he's, he stays honest. He never gives in to the state or to the church. He ends up in jail for three years. He has to go into exile and he dies one of the wretched of the earth at the age of 56. He's truly impoverished in both, well, certainly in the financial sense. But he doesn't give in to the system. In that sense, he's like Feuerbach, who we talked about last time. They refuse to make their peace, as Karl Marx, of course, never made his peace with the system either. We'll have to leave it there. Well, there we are, back to the New Testament and Brussels, the brand New Testament and Brussels and the Communist Manifesto in four weeks' time. Wonderful, Annie. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. And uh, it is literally the end of the program. We uh, uh, helped to celebrate Transgender Visibility Day by speaking to getting uh, together some voices from the gen transgender community. Uh, we particularly spoke to Sally Goldner about uh, the Code of Victoria and transgender uh, resource uh, called um, Safeguarding the End of the Rainbow, Rainbow, a guide to help LGBTI people in Victoria plan an end of life of their choice. Uh, Kevin came to us live uh, Vivian Langford gave us a great report about something that went under the radar, 10,000 people meeting in uh, Sydney last Saturday about uh, uh, it's time to choose to save the earth. And, uh, and then, of course, Humphrey, coming up next is Published or Not. Uh, we'll go out with some Mia Dyson. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.